Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay, praise the Lord. Good start this morning. Let's all go to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. The book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so excited about this, this series. I've learned so much myself and so thankful. The Search for Meaning, written by the amazing King Solomon. Uh, before I start, let me just tell you a quick little something that we do in our home. It's kind of a popular thing we do. So it seems like a lot of times around the dinner table, discussions get going and opinions get flying. But uh, it's one of those, um, it's called overrated, underrated, okay? So, um, you know, everybody, you have to give what you, something out there you think is overrated and something you think is underrated. And so everybody... You know, it's it's always becomes arguments, of course, at that point. But one of the, my most controversial is that uh, dates, the fruit, a date, is underrated. Yeah. It's underrated. They are they are God's candy, okay. But nobody in my family agrees. Nobody, they, except now Skylar. Skylar, my daughter-in-law, she joined the family, and now I have someone on my side, and she even taught me you put peanut butter on the date. And then you have God's Snickers bar right there, so, okay. But now, now here's my overrated, one of my overrated, and it's going to be controversial. I, I bet at least 50% in here will not agree with me. It maybe make some people mad, all right? Milk with cookies, overrated, yeah. overrated, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coffee with cookies is where it's at, all right, so anyway. Okay, anyway. So there's a good discussion to have this Thanksgiving with your family. Make everybody uh, get all uh, everybody against each other during Thanksgiving season. But the reason I bring it up, Solomon has been making the case, really, the last few weeks we've talked about in the last few chapters, that riches and wealth overrated, <laughs> overrated. They're nice to have. Certainly, nothing wrong with having wealth. Nothing wrong with having riches, but they are not as great as everyone thinks uh, they are. Wealth, money, stuff, material. It's just not. It doesn't meet the deepest needs of people. But now, what we're going to see in the chapter today is Solomon's underrated. And here's what it is. Pain. Pain is underrated. Problems are underrated. Adversity is underrated. Difficulties in our life, they're underrated. We hate pain. We avoid it at all costs, but pain is an excellent teacher, and it's a great character builder. Frankly, to be honest with you, I don't want to teach this. <laughs> I don't like teaching on this kind of thing because I feel like, <laughs> it's just sort of me in my head, but I feel like God's going to test me to see whether I believe this or not. Because um, this is way easier to preach and way easier to teach than it is to live. And I know that. Uh, many of you have experienced great pain or are in the middle of great pain right now in your life. 
But the things we're going to talk about are true nonetheless, and we need to hear it. We're going to see some excellent life wisdom today. In the search for meaning, what we'll find in life is that pain is actually really a good friend of ours often. It builds character, and that's what we need. And so a few of these chapters here remind me of Solomon's other book that he wrote, the book of Proverbs, and you're going to kind of see that as we go through this chapter here today. So there's no outline that I gave you. There are some papers back there you can kind of fill in. You can write whatever you want to write (laughs) as you're going through if you're a note taker. Uh, But there'll be plenty of wisdom from God's word here to jot down. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, let's start in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. The wisest man who ever lived said that. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, we all probably have a good idea about the meaning of that first phrase. A good name is better than precious ointment. You might be able to afford some really great perfume, expensive perfume. And when you enter a room, everyone takes notice of you. They can smell you in the room. And when you leave, the, that great smell is still with everybody. Uh, that, may be the, that may be the case for you. But better than that is that when you enter a room you enter it with a good reputation. And when you leave, you leave the same way, with a great reputation. It's so much better. A good name, and we're talking about, is character, integrity, and the ability to be trusted. And these are rare and extremely high in worth and in value. You know, the people at work, the people in your life who have a good name, those are the kind of people you, you know you can trust. And such a rare and great person. Proverbs says, and Solomon wrote this, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Now the second phrase though of this verse is a little bit more challenging to interpret. It says, in the day of death than the day of one's birth. So what does this mean? Now there are several different possible interpretations and it is, you know, it needs to be connected here to Uh, the other verses. So I'm going to give you three different possible interpretations. The first one is that it's a very pessimistic, and this is a very pessimistic interpretation. That is basically that Solomon is saying life is miserable, and so death is better. (laughs) And for the believer, the death is always better. We know we're going to go to heaven, so there is some truth there. But this doesn't fit well with the first phrase of the verse. The second interpretation is that It means a good reputation is of good value, especially when you've kept it strong all the way to your death. A person who is is just born hasn't done anything yet. (laughs) They have no reputation at all, but a person who has died has earned great respect in their life. And so, therefore, the day of their death is better than the day of their birth. And I, I like that one, and it fits with the first part, the first phrase there. But maybe the most likely in the full context here is this next one. And that is that what Solomon is saying is that death has more to teach us about life than birth does. And again, the key theme here as we're going to go through and you're going to see as it unfolds is that pain is underrated. So what he's saying here as he opens this idea is that the day of death can actually be very beneficial for us dealing with someone's death. Dealing with somebody we love, their death. Dealing with death in general and really facing it can actually be very beneficial. So we could paraphrase it maybe this way. The day of someone's death is of more educational value than the day of someone's birth. 
just like a good name is of more relational value than expensive fragrance. So, and now look at how that theme carries over into the next few verses. Verse two, it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. See, in other words, better, it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. That's what Solomon is saying. Because when you're faced with the end of all men, when you're faced with that, the living will lay that to heart. See, everyone learns more at a funeral than they do at a party. When I was growing up, I actually remember hearing my dad say, as, as a preacher, he, he, he would say, I'd rather preach at a funeral than a wedding. And as a young man, I did not understand that. Why would you ever even want to be at a funeral? It's a horrible place to be. Nobody wants to be there. So why? What he meant was that more people are paying attention to the important things in life at a funeral than they are at a wedding. At a wedding, most people aren't even listening to you. They're just focused on celebrating the couple. That's just kind of how it is. But funerals give you a chance to give the gospel to a ready audience, people who are already thinking about death. They, 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 the living lay death to their heart. Now, I understand that many people, uh, and that, that's not because as, as you grow older, everyone begins to understand this, many people who would never think about eternal things at all in their life are forced, when someone dies in their life, they're forced to stop and think about the end. Good times are wonderful, but they rarely teach us anything, really. They're happy, they're fun, uh, we love them and we need them, but they don't teach us a whole lot. But pain, on the other hand, is a fantastic teacher. The late Christian teacher, Howard Hendricks, he asked a group of successful CEOs, he said, how many of you were made and shaped by pain? Every single hand went up. Then he asked, now guys, how many of you have kids and you're doing everything that you can to make sure that they don't go through pain? And several hands went up again. And that's not how to raise children. And that's not how God raises his children either. We have to be pushed sometimes. We have to be squeezed. We have to, pain has to be applied sometimes for us to grow. Look at verse three. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Now this is some amazing wisdom we're getting here. And sorrow is better than laughter. Now let me ask you, do you believe that? I love to laugh, and God is not against laughter. Proverbs says that a merry heart does good like a medicine. So, we're talki- so what we're talking really about here is a balanced life. We're not saying God intends for someone to live a sorrow-filled, horrible, <laughs> painful life, and there's going to be a better person. What God is saying is you need both. We need times of laughing, but let's be honest, that doesn't make the heart better necessarily. Sorrow forces our heart to draw close to the Lord, which makes it better. Verse four, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, or the house of weeping and crying, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, or laughter and fun. Now this might sound morbid at first, but I think that the best thing for us, for anyone, is to be at the bedside of someone who goes from this life into eternity. I think it would be good for everyone to actually witness a person die. 
The heart of the wise, it says, is in the house of mourning or the house of weeping, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, I've been at the bedside of several dying people, and now I begin to understand what God is saying here. I can't help but thinking about the first time that I was in the house of mourning. I watched one of the precious deacon's wives of our church, Rosie Voyer. She passed from this life into the next. We were all, several of her friends and her husband sitting right there by her side. She had cancer and um, it, was, it was taking her life. And so those last few moments, everybody in the room, in the living room was singing praise songs to the Lord, singing her literally into heaven. She was breathing very, just labored breaths. And I was just taking this all in, very young pastor, but trying to be there for comfort and praying. And I watched her slip from this life right into the next and she stopped breathing. Husband just weeping, kissing her. And I saw, as it says here, the heart of the wise in the house of mourning. And it made a profound impression on me. All of our family pretty much was there the night that my mom died. Um, She could barely get the words out. As we left that evening, we were all kind of there in her bedroom and just loving her, and she was just, it w- we knew it was going to be very close. And um, she said she loved us to each one, barely could get the words out, but we all kissed her goodbye. Then in the middle of the night, Dad called and said, you know, Mom's in heaven. And, we, and I went over that night, in the middle of the night there then, just to be with Dad and to help whatever I, way I could. And Mom, she, she was in her upstairs bedroom, and so we were up there with her, and uh, the funeral home guys came and needed to take her body out, and so they needed to get her down the stairs, but they couldn't handle her alone, so I will never forget literally carrying my own mom's body down the stairs with the guys, and just the, the feeling of that. You know, in the old days, way back, everyone really was acquainted more with death, the reason part of that, I think, was is that when a family member died or somebody in your family died, you know, the funeral home didn't come and whisk the body away real quick. Or they didn't die necessarily in hospitals. They would die there, and then you would lay the body maybe even on your kitchen table for days as you prepared the body for burial. And you did it yourself. Now, listen, I mean, I don't blame us. We, we do it this way, and no one wants to think about death But as it says here, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Because we become wiser after facing those kinds of things, it goes into our heart, it just seeps way down in there, and we get more serious about things. We we begin to understand what this life is all about and that there is an end date. It's a limited time only here. It's good to be prepared for life but even better to be prepared for death. You know, on the flip side of this, it says here that the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This is where you try to just live denying all the pain of life and live as happy as you can and just kind of ignoring that there's anything bad in this world. And this is unfortunately what the typical unbeliever will do. They ignore all the big questions in life, ignore everything that's really going on around us that's anything deep and hope everything just works out in the end. In his novel, The Second Coming, uh, Walker Percy writes this. Listen to this. He says, The present-day unbeliever is crazy. 
because he finds himself born into a world of endless wonders, having no notion how he got here. A a world in which he eats, sleeps, works, grows old, gets sick, and dies. He takes his comfort and ease, plays along with the game, watches TV, drinks his drink, laughs, as if his prostate were not growing cancerous, his arteries turning to chalk, his brain cells dying by the millions, as if the worms were not going to have him in no time at all. See, man does everything we can. We try so many things to distract us from death and the big things in life. But wisdom says face it. Face it and be ready for it. Actually, this is wisdom for every area of life. The best way to make a wise decision, really, truly, in any area of our life, is to start with the end in mind and work backwards. You know, what's going to happen to me? What's the end? What do I want the end to be like? On my fun- at my funeral, what do I want people to say about me? What do I want people to remember about me? And if I start there and work backwards, I'll be wise. Another pain that is underrated, really, in our life is rebuke from people, from good people, wise people. Verse 5 and 6. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Solomon draws a contrast here. Wise rebuke and the song of fools. The song of fools, he says, is like crackling fire made from thorns. You know, have you ever thrown dried up thorns into a, a, a fire? A lot of noise and a lot of action for a, for a real quick moment, but then it dies quickly and has really no value, no warmth, long-term warmth. The opposite is wise rebuke. Wise rebuke, however, starts off painful, but it's of great long-term value. This is talking about those people who set us straight in our life. Fools, they, you can just laugh all day with fools and really have no value, but the, the wise people in your life will rebuke you will tell you when you've messed up. They'll set you straight. They're not gonna let you ruin your life without a fight. (laughs) When we're veering off, they keep us accountable. Makes me think of good parents, a good pastor, good teachers, good bosses, good leaders, good spouses, etc. We all need people in our lives who are wise and will tell it to us straight, will give us the truth and rebuke us when we need it. Praise the Lord, by the way, if you have someone like that in your life. You need to go give them a hug today and thank the Lord for those people who are watching out for you and keeping tabs on you. But unfortunately, many would rather listen to the song of fools. Uh, That's much more comfortable and much easier. People who make a lot of noise but give us no real help. One of the big ones for this, I was thinking about this, is often is coworkers. Now, we spend a lot of time with coworkers. You, you spend a lot of time with coworkers. You know, it's amazing if you average out the time you spend with people in your life, you spend a lot of time, some, often if you're in an office or around these people, you spend a lot of time with these folks. You're talking a lot. And we hear a lot of their life philosophies. And it's often the song of fools. They're just playing the same tune as popular culture. They're just singing a song that everyone else is singing out there. But listening to the song of fools also reminds me of what it says in the New Testament who, when Paul says they uh, heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. 
See, people hate it when Scripture, the Bible, steps on their toes. And so what they do is they find a teacher out there. They heap to themselves teachers. They heap teachers. They get as many teachers as they can that won't step on their toes and just plays the song of fools. Whatever they want to hear, tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I want to hear. It's so much healthier, as he's saying here, to hear what we need to hear. Did you know when they first manufactured golf balls that they made the covers smooth? There were no little dents in them. But then they discovered that after a ball had been roughed up and, and had something to it, that the balls went further, more distance. So they started manufacturing little dimpled <laughs> golf balls. Listen, if we're going to go further... We have to have a few dents beaten into us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, we kind of just need some beaten up a little bit. We need some pain. We need somebody to take a hammer to us and give us a few lessons in life. That's good preaching right there. We need to be all dimpled golf balls. We all do need to be that. Now, we're going to see some rapid-fire wisdom here next. And it's, again, from the king of wisdom himself. This is from Solomon. So as we look into this, remember, this is God speaking through the wisest man who ever lives to us. But if we look closely, we're going to see, I think, a line of connection in these verses. And these are perspective-changing statements now that can be applied to any of our lives, or to many, really, of life, life situations. But I think Solomon is primarily applying them to the painful times in our lives. Pain is underrated. Look at verse 7. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Now let's look at the first phrase there. Uh, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. Now this could be speaking about being the oppressed, or maybe more likely it's about being the oppressor, but maybe it's meant to be both. Either way, the truth is the same. Oppression can make even a wise man go crazy. You put heavy oppression on anyone, even a wise person, and it could break them. Pain has a way of changing people. I read a, state, a stat that said uh, about 50% of people who leave their jobs aren't leaving to get away, or, or the reason they're leaving is to get away from their manager. They're not necessarily leaving the job, they're leaving the manager. They don't quit jobs, they quit oppressive bosses. The lesson to us is, if you oppress people, you'll lose the wise people in your life. And then the second phrase, a gift or a bribe, it is t- what it's talking about there, a bribe destroys the heart. You know, if you bribe or you use money to get what you want, money changes people. Even good people will sell their soul if the dollar amount is big enough. And we've all seen or, and we've all heard of the downfall of business leaders or Christian leaders even because of money. So what it's saying here is don't ruin people by bribing them and don't be ruined by bribes. And this verse is a great verse for anyone in leadership. But I think the next verse kind of goes with it here and gives us better understanding of where he's going. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, these, if we take these two verses together, I think that we would do it in this way. The quick route to uh, what you want is through oppressing people and bribery. But those are horrible choices 
It's better to start small, as this verse is saying, and work up, then the end is better than the beginning. And you've shown patience rather than pride. See, life is hard at the beginning of a thing, even painful sometimes. We want to avoid the pain and we want to get somewhere quickly. We want to avoid all the early pain in, in a matter and just get to the end. Um, but, and, and, and you could maybe do that by oppressing people or bribing people. And remember, this is talking from a king's and a leader's standpoint, and so there's even more opportunity for that kind of thing. But it's so much better to keep in mind that the end is better than the beginning when we do things the right way. With a patient spirit, as it says here, and not a prideful spirit, a proud spirit. You're just gonna enjoy the end so much more. You know, like here on this campus, when I think about this building and all that took place, man, we could have taken the quick route. We could have taken the route that, you know, got ourselves into debt, deep debt as a church and, and gotten to this place much quicker. But look now how we enjoy the end so much more when we're free of debt. And this whole campus is just a testimony to God's grace. The, end is, the beginning is difficult, but the end is so much better. There's just no substitute for good, honest, Christ-honoring work. See, don't be the, he's saying don't be the get-rich-quick person. Take the pain now, the difficulty now, so that you're better even equipped in the future. You know, Dave Ramsey says that his favorite financial book outside of the Bible is The Tortoise and the Hare. <laughs> Slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. This is true in our spiritual lives as well. You know, if you think about it, anything in our spiritual life, if we're gonna grow, if we're gonna get closer to God, if we're gonna have a better spiritual walk with the Lord, we need to start off in those little seeds that are growing. We, we gotta keep working at it, keep working at it. The spiritual life is built one day at a time. It's painful sometimes. You're trying to make those right choices on a day-to-day -day basis, but keep on making those choices. Keep on making those choices. And little by little by little by little by little, you're gonna increase and grow in maturity. And, in the, and the end is so much better even than the beginning. So be patient. Have a patient spirit. We all, we all know what hap often happens, though, when we get impatient. It leads to anger. It leads to bitterness. Verse 9, be not hasty in thy spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to be angry. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Things aren't going how we want them to go or expecting them to go. If they're not going quick enough or whatever in life. Or if there's, things are painful living in a painful situation, God seems to be moving way too slow, you're not getting me out of this thing, God, we can then get hasty in spirit. and We get angry. And then that anger will sit inside of us and take up residence in our bosom. And pretty soon, everything then in life is tinted by anger. And we become a fool. Have you ever met somebody who has anger resting in the, their bosom? <laughs> There's no better way to say it. The Bible has such a perfect way of putting things. The Hebrew word for bosom means to enclose. It is the chest with the arms embracing something. It's like you're just hugging onto something. It's right in here. Anger is just sitting inside this person's chest and they just seem to embrace it. Somehow, anger has become a comfort to the person. And it's a way for them to deal with life. But it's such a foolish way of dealing with life. 
and it hurts themselves and it hurts everybody else around them. Frederick Buckner wrote, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Come on, let go of that anger. Let go of that anger. Open up those arms, get that thing off you. I think the way to do that lies in the first phrase of this. It says, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. Slow down, slow down and think with your spirit before reacting to a matter, to a situation. There's a deeper issue than the issue. Verse eight says, mentions uh, being patient in spirit and, or a patient spirit and a proud spirit, like uh, the, the two opposing each other. So ask yourself, why am I getting angry? What's the deeper issue here? What is the core issue behind my anger? Is it pride? Is it the fact that I'm not getting what I want? How is my anger affecting other people? Is there a better way to get my point across? What would help, uh, help long-term and not just short-term right now? And Lord, how would you have me to handle this situation for the best outcome? See, it's thinking with your spirit. But it's not being hasty. It's slowing down, putting your spirit, bringing your spirit into the game with the Lord's help, and saying, Lord, help me here in this situation, know how the, the, the deeper issue and how to solve this thing. If you're getting angry often, it could be that you're just being, you're too quick to react. Slow down, think with your spirit. One of, one of our big issues when it comes to anger really is expectations. We expect things to be a certain way. We expect God to have it done this way and this way in our life. We expect our life just to be how it used to be and never change. But that thinking is set up for disaster. Look what it says in verse 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. See, some people are always looking back and wondering why things aren't as good as they used to be. Personally, in their family, nationally. What's the cause that the former days were better than these? In other words, why was it so much better in the past? What happened to the good old days? First of all, we have a tendency, we do, to glamorize the past. It wasn't as good as we make it out to be, typically. But second, you can't get anywhere in life if you're always looking in the rearview mirror. Sitting around, always questioning why we can't go back to better days is not wise, according to this book and according to this verse. In the business world, you know, they've learned that it's better to adapt quickly to change. If you're going to be successful as a business, the, business, the businesses who roll with the punches, uh, they, they're successful. And the business who don't, they fall by the wayside. I just saw this week that Chick-fil-A has a new plan for keeping up with the times. In, in some of their markets, the digital orders comprise more than half of their sales, and it's only growing. And... So the, uh, the executive director of restaurant design says our, our customers have an appetite for convenience. And so 
They said, you know, you can, you can order on your app and you can go and pick up or you can go through drive-through. But they said this year, 2024 coming up, we're going to have, we're going to build brand new restaurant and it's, we're going to give it a trial run here. And it's a double decker, as you can see. It's, um, it's, it's going to start in Atlanta, but they can keep the speed of making food with plenty of space for people. And they can open multiple more lanes this way and they have space for 75 cars. They can bring you in so fast and still have the personal touch at the bottom. So they make it all the food really fast. Somehow they're going to figure out a way to get that thing down there, have people all running throughout there, give you a personal touch with friendliness and get all the mobile orders and everything done quickly. Now, I re- the reason I bring that up is we can learn something here. Life is going to change and people are gonna change around us. And that's what Chick-fil-A has understood. People are on their phones constantly. They wanna order on their phones. They wanna come, want it to be quick, but they do want a personal touch and they want friendliness. How can we meet all of these things? At some point, we, we have to stop whining about what it was like in the good old days and start asking the Lord to help us adjust to what we need to do today. How do we address the issues of today? And how do we deal with it, Lord, in the best possible way? Solomon is giving us such great wisdom here on dealing with pain. I I don't like the way it is right now. I don't like the stuff that's going on, but I have to face it. And I have to do the best possible thing I can with the situation in front of me. And here's how valuable this wisdom is. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense And money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. So here's what he's saying here. Wisdom, like money or an inheritance, provides some security in life. So he's kind of contrasting wisdom and money here, and both are good, uh, very good at times. I mean, it's nice to have money. It provides some security here and there. But But knowledge tells us Wisdom is better than money because it makes a deeper and more meaningful life. In the the context here now of going through pain and problems, especially, wisdom will do you so much more good than money. I love what it says here. Wisdom giveth life to them that have it. See, money can provide a living. Wisdom provides a life. Do you value uh, wisdom more than money? I mean, really, you, have to, you need to answer that. Many, do you value wisdom more than money? Many of you do. Or you wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning at 9.30 digging into the word of God. Lastly, we see an important theme here that Solomon continues to reiterate again and again throughout Ecclesiastes, and that is to accept the sovereignty of God. We need to accept it. I know life is painful. We need to accept this. And this is so important when it comes to dealing with pain. Verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God also has set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. Now notice the emphasis on the word consider. It means to look intently. If it's a time of prosperity, he says, be joyful. And I I hope everybody hears that. If if God has given you things and 
and I would say probably 100% of us here really truly are prosperous in so many ways. Um, enjoy what he's given to you. You know, eat, eat an extra uh, bowl of ice cream, okay? Go ahead, enjoy life. Have a good time. I mean, really, as we go through Ecclesiastes, he keeps saying, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy this life I've given to you. It's a temporary time here, but enjoy what God's given you. Go ahead. And just remember, it's a gift from God. But if it's a time of adversity in your life, then you need to consider, you need to look, you need to think intently. Look deeply and think. These are the times now of learning and growth. As he said here, it's, it's better it, in the house of mourning than the house of mirth. There's wisdom to be learned here. And so if I'm going through adversity, there is something God is wanting me to learn. Job had to remember that when everything in his life had fallen apart. He even told his wife about it. You remember this? Job chapter two, verses nine and 10. Listen to this. He said, then said his wife unto him, Job, dost thou still retain that integrity? Curse God and die. They'd lost everything and his wife told him, why don't you just curse God and die? And then here's what Job said to his wife, verse 10. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall not we receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. See, we have to accept both prosperity and adversity from God. We have to. Every one of us has been incredibly prosperous compared to many people in the world. And that is God's doing. Don't ever forget that. That's God's doing. But God will also allow adversity to come into our life. He will. And we have to accept that as well from God. With the same heart and the same attitude. Why does God send both? Warren Wearsby says, to keep us from thinking we know it all and can manage our lives without him. God balances our lives by giving us enough blessings to keep us happy and enough burdens to keep us humble. It's the pain paradox. Prosperity is overrated and adversity is underrated. And wisdom helps us accept both. As I close here in the bristlecone pine forest of the White Mountains in California, there's a particular grove of bristlecone pines that are the oldest living things, they say, on the planet. Many of them are over 4,000 years old. The oldest one, they say, has been dated to 4,700 years old, this tree. Uh, these trees grow in the mountain regions of the western states here, and sometimes they're as high as two, uh, two miles, two or more miles above the sea level. And, they, and, and these evergreens sometimes live, as it says, for 1,000 years. Now, the older specimens only have a thin layer of bark on them, on their trunks, and, and if you can think about the habitat, it's all rocky soil and very little rain. And it almost seems incredible that they would live for so long or even survive at all. But it is these environmental adversities, if you will, that actually contribute to them being so, uh, so strong. See, what happens is the cells that are produced because of this uh, give these densely arranged resin canals and they're formed inside that, that plant. And then when that happens, the wood it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and it can live for an extremely long amount of time. But did you know these same kinds of trees can 
grow real fast, and then die very young. But, and you know how? Just give them richer conditions. <laughs> give them ease. Plant them in a real, real, real great spot. And uh, you think they're going to grow good, and they just die pretty quick. It's the harshness that actually makes them strong. That's exactly what we're really talking about here. Adversity is a much better teacher than prosperity. It's often God's chisel on our lives. He's just creating the person he wants in this life. He's creating the person that he wants us to be to make a difference for him. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.